Welcome to Inspiring People and Places, where we interview national leaders in the architectural, engineering, construction, and development industry in an effort to educate, innovate, and inspire industry professionals to disrupt the status quo, improve their project teams, and steward public and private investments more effectively. I'm your host, BJ Kramer, President and CEO of MCFA. Allow me to introduce today's guest. All right, inspiring people in places. We've got a dynamic duo here today. I'm excited to introduce Scott Kelly and Drew Levine from Revision Architects, Philly firm, introduced to us by Catherine Martinez. So thank you to Catherine for the the introduction. And excited to to jump in. We were just chatting before the show about, you know, what do we want to get out of this? And and Drew and Scott are new to the podcast or to our podcast and to my network. And we were talking about, you know, what, what is the goal of the podcast? The podcast is really an educational, hopefully informational podcast about best practices in the industry, career pathways, and really at the end of the day, leadership, because I think as consultants and or owners, at the end of the day, projects need to be led and they all run into problems. And we got we to gotta bring a team together navigate those problems, not point fingers, but figure out solutions. And based on my research of Revision's website, which we will put in the show notes, these two guys are birds of a feather with with the podcast and with me. So Drew, Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you, BJ. Yep. Thanks so much for having us. I'm excited to dig in. And, and like I said before the show, first time I'm doing a, a two-part interview. So we'll have to do a little bit of a back and forth, but I do want to hear how both of your careers started as early as is relevant to, to your career path. Some people get inspired with Legos and some people stumble into it after college. So give us each of your stories and then we'll talk about how Revision Architecture came together with both of you. Sounds good. Thank you. I'll jump in and really relevant to career path since our time is limited. I'll just jump in. As already being a practicing architect in Philadelphia, I was really frustrated that I wasn't given the opportunity or didn't have the opportunities to practice what I believe in, which is a deep green building. And so I planned to leave Philly and go somewhere else that I thought I could practice what I believe in. And in that act, I resigned from my previous firm and planned to pack up and go and uh, got a phone call from a contractor of all people just before I left that said to me, hey, a couple of years back, you made us build a project and made us do everything in the leads rating system. I kind of snickered at that and said, yeah, yeah, I did. And they asked the question, why didn't you tell us? And my answer was really simple, because you would have charged more because I didn't tell you you didn't charge more. They kind of thought about it for a minute and said, yeah, you're right. We would have. Oh, and by the way, can we hire you to help us design our next office building for our people? We want to do a lead project. And I said, sure, I'll start, but I'm going to move out of Philadelphia. I'll I'll get you started for the first month. Then I'll help find somebody else to help you out. Two weeks later, I got a very similar call from a school that said, hey, can you do an addition for us? We understand your philosophical approach and we really want you. And so I said, okay, I'll get you you started, but I'm leaving Philly. (laughs) And now it's 21 years later. I never got to leave and got a really good opportunity to do some great work. That's awesome. So I fell backwards in for the career path, but it was a good path. That's great. So did the firm start 21 years ago? Roughly. I started December 9th, 2001 started a firm and then flipped it because I didn't want a firm named after me. I wanted the firm named after a philosophy of re-envisioning the built and natural environment and with a social overlay. And that gave birth to the name revision rather than it being named after a person, which quite honestly isn't cool. And just from an education standpoint, you're Philly through and through. You were Temple, right? Yeah, I was Temple. Born and raised here. Left a couple times. Realized how awesome Philadelphia is. And I came right back. And I've been all over this beautiful country. 
But Where did Philly you think you were headed to when you kept saying you were leaving Philly? Charleston. I had work lined okay. up in Charleston and Asheville. Gotcha. Yeah. So I was going to stay on this coast rather than going to the other coast. And I'm really happy I did. Philly has awesome. rebounded to think deep about sustainability issues. And through that, it gave me a great home here to practice what I believe in. That's great. All right, Drew, you're up. All right. So my professional journey to where I am right now is really kind of centered in different eco-regions that I've lived in. And so I grew up in Cumberland, Maryland, which is a historic small town in the Appalachian Mountains. And so, you know, from a very young age, I was I had like one foot in the built environment surrounded by historic architecture and one foot in the natural world as well. And then I went to college at Virginia Tech, which is in the Blue Ridge Mountains. And so I had more of the same there. At that point, I relocated uh, after graduating to San Francisco. I moved there with my wife. We were in architecture school together, weren't married at the time. We, we wanted to go to a big city after we graduated. So we jumped to San Francisco, which was in the Bay Area. And so we were experiencing this amazing city that's surrounded by this amazing ecology. And then we, when we moved back to the East Coast, we, we landed in Philadelphia and, you know, we experienced the same. We were here in the city, but we were also enjoying the natural environment here from the mountains to the ocean to the Wissahickon Valley. And so it's really this kind of uh, love of the urban and built environment and the love of nature that's really kind of shaped my career arc. And it's kind of what moved me, you know, from not just doing architecture, but doing architecture that is, you know, addressing what Scott was saying about the balance between the built and the natural environment. I would say a, a real critical moment for me in my career that kind of led me to, to pivot from a more traditional architecture path was going to Greenbuild Conference in 2008 and hearing Bill McKibben speak there. And this was kind of right, right at the beginning of the start of his organization, 350.org. And I was really inspired and moved by the science that he was talking about and the ideas of grassroots organizing. And uh, came back to Philadelphia and rallied a group of like-minded architects, architect friends, and some other kind of adjacent professionals. And we, we started doing community organizing in Philadelphia. And it was really exciting to get involved with this movement, not just on a professional level, but you know, at that grassroots level and meeting amazing people and realizing that, you know, this was something that, that I needed to do with my career. Tell us what 350.org is. Yeah. So 350.org, it's, it's an environmental organization and it's really based around climate science about the atmospheric concentration of carbon. And, you know, when, when this science first came out, it was, Hey, we need to be at 350 parts per million uh, in our atmosphere, or we're going to have some catastrophic problems. And we are way past that now. So it's all, it's an organization that's built on science and advocacy. And it's really, it's grown from this, you know, very small group that Bill McKibben started in, in, you know, 2006 to 2008 to this worldwide organization that's one of the leaders in environmental advocacy and, and policy. Interesting. You, you said, it, it's William. Who's, who started it? Oh, Bill McKibben. Bill. Yeah. Bill McKibben. Yeah. Bill McKibben. He's a great author. And he's actually, you know, one of the, you know, within the environmental movement, he's, he's often credited for writing one of the early books on environmentalism, The End of Nature. It's a great book that I'd recommend people read. But he's an, he's an amazing speaker, very inspiring. And, you know, it's equal parts science as well as, you know, understanding how to relate to people and how to connect with people and, and get things done. All right. So I, I've got to go here. I, I said before we jumped on the show that I'm we're managing a project down on the Jersey Shore. And so I'm dialing in from the Jersey Shore. And right before I got on here, I got an article from the Inquirer about the the windmills out in the ocean. and as you guys have have hinted at there's you know there's trade-offs but this is a you know there's a huge environmental issue and it's human behavior it's public policy it's economics it's a sustainable future 
I don't I I don't necessarily want to go into what your opinion is on that, but I will if if you guys have an opinion. It feels like it's really really hard to figure out what is truth, right? Because when it becomes a public policy issue, it becomes a political hot potato. So the average human being that's trying to keep up with the regular stuff in their lives have a hard time researching what what right looks like. And I, I use that as a backdrop because a, a woman named Catherine Moore, I believe is her name, did a TED Talk, The Trade-Offs of Building Green. And it's like a six-minute TED Talk. We'll put it in the show notes. But She's she's a environmental friendly, getting ready to rebuild her home, and she all of a sudden realizes how overwhelmed she is because demoing something versus trying to keep something feels like you're spending more cost and more material to keep it than it you know. So I put that as the backdrop of the complexities of building green in the built environment. And you know, lead you guys referenced lead, lead did a very good job of two parts, one, setting a framework, and two, using, I think, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I, my introduction to the built environment was BRAC 2005, which was base realignment and closure, and they did a good job advocating that BRAC 2005 adopt lead standards into all these new construction contracts, which was, I think, $100 billion or something of military construction so all of a sudden you have a forcing function in the industry that is specifying lead, you know, and and now it takes off. Envision is another credential in the infrastructure environment that really hits on the same thing. And and I love what you said about you know blending the balance of the built and natural environments. I mean, at the end of the day, I think I don't know many people who intentionally want to not create cohesion or be smart and sustainable. I think that most people have a budget, so they've got to be figuring out, you know, what's what are the trade-offs. So talk to us about revision, what your philosophy is, how this came about, and then we'll talk about how you navigate this on a on a project or two. All right. Let me first validate some of what you're saying, BJ. You're absolutely right. With the with BRAC, it did give the lead rating system a big boost. What lead gave to everyone else was validation and metrics so you could understand what your impact was. And KPIs. to me, that was a great, that was, yeah, that was a great thing. And there were, you know, the program Spirit was, I think was another one that was involved in the military, but it was about accountability, about not just saying, hey, I'm designing something that's environmentally responsible. It's saying, hey, I'm proving using math and science that I'm actually doing what's right. And LEAD taught many people early in the industry how to think responsibly and think differently. Thank God for LEAD, because it did. It changed many, many things. Part of the philosophical question is, where do we go from here? So LEAD, great training wheels, great start, made us think differently. Now we've hit a little bit of a green plateau a couple of years later. So the question becomes, how do we go above lead? How do we move towards a more authentic sustainability? That's a long conversation. I think we're going to dip into some of those issues today. But I think the next part of this question is for the philosophy of revision. Yeah, and, and just kind of along the lines of what, what you're asking here, BJ, and I think it's a great question about where we go and how this all relates to it. And I just want to swing back to, you know, to 350.org, because this is about, you know, when we start to think about the the issues that we're chasing down, it's kind of like we've rocketed past the safe point. And, you know, part of, and we're experiencing this summer, you know, all over this country, all over the world what's happening. And, you know, part of what we, we try to think about, and I love how you said what right looks like. We often use a statement here that, that we've learned from the living building challenge community is like what good looks like. And that's the question that we're constantly asking ourselves is what does good look like? And to Scott's point, you know, getting to this authentic sustainability, 
you know, I, I'm, everyone at this point probably understands sustainability is kind of like the balance point in a, you know, in a scale. And we're, we're so tipped in one direction right now that we need to start to tip in the other direction to kind of get back to balance. So really in terms of what we're, we're moving towards is we're moving towards a restorative built environment. And so not talking about less bad, but more good. If I can give a quick example of that, not using less energy, not using less water, but flipping that to create all the energy our country needs independently. And in fact, a little bit of extra to give to our neighbor and not using less water, but taking the water that falls from the sky, using it, cleaning it better than it came from the sky and giving it back to nature in a balanced way. I don't know if you guys have seen Bjork Engel's hedonistic sustainability. Oh, I like yes. I like the reaction. Yes. Well, there, there's there's there's, there's, there's an emotional reaction there, Scott. Well, it's it's interesting though, and I'll, I'll cue Scott up for this one because he often talks about, and this is one of our favorites, and everyone loves it. He talks about the sustainability party boat, and I'll let him explain it because I yeah. think it kind of relates to what you're getting at. Yeah, there, yeah, there's two parts to that. Let's talk about the sustainability party boat. And BJ, <laughs> I know you well enough to know you, you and us, we like to have fun. And life should be fun. But what we see is life is on the Titanic heading towards an iceberg. It is going to hit it if we continue on our path. What we need to do, BJ, is pull up next to the party boat, next to the Titanic, on the party boat. And we're going to have a little more fun than everybody else because we have meaning in the work that we do of sustainability. And guess what? Drew and I realized everybody else is getting on our boat off the Titanic. And then we're able to pull away and miss that iceberg. And that's a really good thing. So sustainability is not about hedonism. It's about finding a balance. It's not about over-consumerism. It's not about getting on my jet airplane, whether it's electric or, or gas, and flying around the world. It's about understanding from a scientific standpoint the carrying capacity of our planet and not exceeding it. Because right now, if you live life, life like most Americans, we need 4.7 planet Earths to sustain our life. We don't have that. So we need to kind of correct and find things in balance and do those things that are fun to get us to where we need to be. And I'll jump off on one more point. Everyone right now is worried about carbon and CO2 because that's the iceberg that the Titanic is going to hit. In fact, we probably already hit it already. It's just ripping through our side right now over our bow. But we have to look beyond that. We have to look at the other toxic stuff that we put in our biosphere. CO2 is just one toxic thing. We have to look at all of the other chemicals that will be around for millions of years that are bioaccumulative in our flesh because we can fix all the issues with global climate change. But if we don't fix the issues of toxicity in our built environment, we got another iceberg to hit. One's enough. All right, you 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 used a 4.7 Earths reference. Where where can we validate? Well, that? I gotta look that one up because it's almost 15 right. years old, 20 years old. Okay, so it might, we might you. be at six Earths by now. It wouldn't surprise me, to be honest. All right, so that one's I at just, least 15 I, I, years. I like old. being able to reference the uh, support for those. Let me take a step back. I, I I'm now I'm really interested in your windmill. Right. <laughs> opinion. It's but coming. Before we go there. But before we go there, revision. How did you guys how did you guys meet and how did Drew land working with Scott in revision? Sure. Architecture? So, great question. So I'd mentioned, you know, I kind of went through this this experience in my career where I got involved with activism, environmental activism, and I decided, you know, this is this is the direction I want to head in my career. And when I decided to leave the the firm that I was at, which is a great Philadelphia firm, I did really good work there, worked with amazing people, but I was really searching for the a way to take my career in a sustainability direction. And it was kind of fateful because as I was looking revision 
was looking. And, you know, the, it, it was crazy. The, the first interview that, that we had was so long. I remember I had to get up and go to the bathroom in the middle of it. Uh, <laughs> it's like we had like a three hour conversation the first time that we met and we were just, you know, like we, it was, it was kind of like we clicked instantly. We, we knew we were phys- philosophically aligned from day one. And so, yeah, I mean, I, I, I came into revision as a, a young architect looking to looking to flex, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd learned enough to be dangerous and I, I wanted to start to apply this and learn about sustainability in a really deep way. You know, I was, I was doing lead like many architects and, you know, and I, when I met Scott, I, I, I got to see that there's, there's a whole other world out there than just doing lead. And so it was just a, a, a wonderful experience where I got to come into revision and work with amazing people on innovative and educational projects and, and grow as an architect in the process. And, you know, and it, and it was a very organic kind of movement within the company, which, which got us to where we are today. Yeah. How big is Revision now? Number yeah. of people? Yeah, I think, I think we're, we're 20 or 21 right now. You know, we, we have and flow. We like, you know, we're a, we're a small business. We, we like that. And, you know, within the company, we have both architects and sustainability consultants. So we're, we're really two studios. We're green architecture and we're, we're kind of like a small architecture studio. You know, we're, I think we're like 10 or 12 people right now. And then we have our high performance building consulting studio that works on all kinds of things in the built environment. And so I'll, I'll add to that, like we get to, because we got really good at deep green architecture really early on, all of our friends in the industry started hiring us. The other architects are like, hey, can you help us? I'm like, sure, we'll help you. Now, let me say, BJ, it's a terrible business model because we teach all our competition, all of our tricks and what we know and give them more technical depth, but it's the right thing to do. It's an abundance mindset. That's okay. Yes. And so there's plenty for all of us. And quite frankly, like our firm can design every lead platinum project in the U.S. and we have like one inch of impact, but I can teach a hundred firms to do what we do. And that impact is magnified and then repeated. So one of the points that's important, I think, for everybody on your podcast is we must be open source and share everything. There's nothing proprietary because you cannot solve the problems our society faces alone. We have to do it together. And awesome. the good news is we're a small company. We get to you know pick and choose a lot of the clients we work with, but we also need to be highly collaborative and help everybody, the owner, the architect, the, the contractor, the municipality along on their journey towards a more sustainable future. So that's and, what we and do. I th- I think, all right, so everybody wants the same goal, I, I believe. I think it's how do you get there and can you afford it? And that's where it becomes overwhelming. How do you navigate that with your clients? Can I give an example? Okay, so how do you afford it? First of all, you got to say, how do you not afford it? <laughs> like, uh, you got to do it. So how do you make it cost effective? is really the challenge. And that's a skill. It takes a long time to figure out the strategies that are most cost-effective that have the most benefit. You actually need to use math and science to figure that out. And you also have to use persuasion to some extent. I'll give you a little example. We just finished a project for Muhlenberg College in the Lehigh Valley. Mm-hmm. It is a living building challenge core project, a lead platinum project, and After we finished it, the college asked us to go back and see if we could get a passive house certification as well. No problem. We kind of bake all that stuff in. When we looked at the cost of that project, we realized that they could pay their energy bill for the next 20 years today and have a really good return on investment. But that doesn't mean the project cost was X dollars. It was X dollars plus their operational cost for that electricity over the next 20 years. When we looked at the metric better differently, when we thought differently, 
the college was like, no problem. That is such a good investment. Thank you, <laughs> because you just saved us a lot of operational money. Have to look beyond construction dollars to operational money. Oh, totally. Life cycle, total life cycle cost. I, there was a, there's another TED Talk, William McDonough, Cradle to Cradle. I think he talks a lot about that. And that's, that's why I want to talk about it. That, that's the argument on windmills is what benefit do they have versus, you know, right. the, the maintenance and the, the long-term, you know, uh, disposal cost, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So we have to look at those three bottom lines, right? The All people, right. the environment, the, the impact of, of the people and how it affects people and prosperity, not just profit, but like how do we all do well together and the effect on the planet. And those three, as John Elkington would describe those, three tectonic plates that shift, we're all trying to align them best to get the best impact, the greatest good for all parties. John Elkington did write a, a good book. I can't remember what it's, it might be called like Triple Bottom Line Principles or something like that. But he's, he's really been a grandfather in the industry to get us to think differently, not just on the construction and design side, but in the entire approach of how we should be philosophically. I think going back to the, the question of, of windmills, though, BJ, I mean, I think that what one of the things that is really important is that we have to be very careful in, in the sustainability world to not presuppose solutions. Everything that we do, part of the, na the very nature of sustainable design and construction is, is hyper-local. And what are the resources that we have in a very specific spot. And so do we have more wind? Do we have more sun? Do we have water movement? And so it's really a question, it's, it's a really complex question of what is the right thing for a particular spot. And sometimes it's multiple things. And, you know, when we have that, you know, the other, the other thing that we ask ourselves in addition to what good looks like is what would nature do? And, you know, nature seldom relies on one source. It has biodiversity. And so we look at like what creates thriving ecosystems. It's usually not a very limited environment where you only have one resource. You, you want to have a lot of resources. And so, you know, wind is a, is a tool within the toolkit. And as we think about, you know, creating a, a sustainable energy future, a clean energy future, it's, it's, it's part of that, that the way that we get there. So, and it's, and it's always complex, you know, as, as Scott said, you know, what are the, in any particular location, those questions of people, planet and prosperity are going to change. And so the windmill off the coast of the Jersey shore is going to have a way different set of influences and constraints in the windmill in the Lehigh Valley, you, you know, so we have to evaluate them in very different ways. As you mentioned earlier, life cycle assessment, you know, we really have to focus on that. One of the things I like about windmills off the Jersey Shore is it's where the energy is being used. There's so much energy lost between the, in the transmission of energy that windmills in central Pennsylvania are still good, but the transmission to get the energy all the way to, back to Harrisburg, the loss of that is huge. So you got to have those strategies where they, where they are close to the, the, the people that are using it. And it's got to be the windmill. It's got to be that every roof that we design should be designed to accommodate future solar panels. That roof will be there for 100 years. The structure will be there for 100 years. The shingles might only be there for 50. But we ought to design that roof. It ought to be part of code that every roof is designed for the two to three pounds of extra weight of a solar system now because then we can do good instead of having to replace the structure to be able to create energy. So solar panels, wind, whatever we can do that doesn't have really bad environmental impact. All right. So you guys are leaders in sustainability and you, what you call, I think, deep green architecture, right? Talk to us about some lessons learned and in, in you, you mentioned persuasion in leading clients and, and projects into the green direction. 
So it's a great question. And I'll say, you know, when I, when I first came to revision, one of the things that I was really surprised by, and it continues to inspire me, is that, you know, we're known for sustainable design, but I think at the root of it is facilitation and listening to clients. And so, you know, we are not as, as architects, we are not dogmatic out of the gate about sustainability. The most important thing for us is to have a good process with our clients and to start by listening. And, you know, we always joke that it's like we're, we're architects with, our, with our, our hand tied behind our back as we listen. We listen for a really long time and we take good notes before we start designing. And the key thing that we've always found with regard to successful sustainability projects is when through that early facilitation and discussion, it emerges as an alignment of values with what a client is looking for. And sometimes it's not, it's something that kind of unfurls through that exploratory process to realize that a, an organization that's, that's focused on mental health, that there's underlying issues of toxicity and access to daylight and fresh air. And, and you kind of have to find slowly like what it is that connects a client with principles of sustainability in a, in a way that like really internally motivates them to want to do this and have it be something that's not like an add-on that costs extra, but something that's like, this is a core part of the project. This is, this is mm -hmm. something that has meaning and no, we're not, we're going to work around this. This is going to be part of it. Yeah. Drew will help that dialogue and facilitate to the point where that core element is imperative for the project. It's not going away. You're not being it out. It's the purpose of the project. And it's helping those clients understand their purpose, their meaning. And nine times out of 10, BJ, we find the same thing. People all want the same thing. It is embedded in sustainability. They just need to go down their pathway to find it. I'll, I'll give you a, a project example on this, BJ. This is one that we're, we're working on right now. It's, it's a project we're really excited about. It's out at Dickinson College. And Dickinson has this amazing organic farm there. And they do regenerative farming. And, and uh, we were selected to work on a project there for a, a learning center on the farm where students can come and the community can come. And uh, we had this great workshop at the beginning of the project on the farm. We had about 40 stakeholders come out. And we had students lead tours around the farm, telling, you know, teaching the professionals and the community members about regenerative farming. And it, it was just wonderful to see in this discussion how the principles of holistic sustainability just they just rose up, right? About things about, you know, water as a precious resource. We need to, we need to focus on our soil health and ecosystem rebuilding. We need to look about being energy independent and resilient. It's got to be beautiful. It's got to be healthy. We want to use local, local businesses, local materials. And it was wonderful because the words that we heard from this community, when we put them all together, they lined up almost perfectly with the living building challenge. And at that point, it becomes a much easier conversation with your client to say, you know, yeah, we're doing this building project and we want to do these things and the community is saying this. And by the way, there's this thing that's out there that's not lead that is, is so aligned with the way that you think and what is meaningful to you and it's going to take your project further. So we're very excited. We're, we're, we're heading down this path to make a living building at Dickinson. At Dickinson. And it's just real exciting how we got there because again, it was an organic process. It wasn't something where we came out of the gate and said, you need to do a living building. And it, it's something that the, the whole team and, and, that, and the stakeholder group has rallied behind at this point. I think we'll end up probably doing LEAD as well because it is such a name brand and because it does help the contractor and subcontractors understand what they're supposed to be doing and give them a framework that they are already understand. Right. So we'll probably do that as well and build off of it and go a little bit further. Let me go back, BJ, to answering your question about how do you lead a client? And I'll try to give you some bullet points here. First, just do it. 
do it. You are in control of the design as the designers. So we all have a responsibility to do this, whether the client wants it or not. It is a moral imperative for us all to do it. So do it anyway, first. Second, bake it in from the very beginning of the design. Things don't need to be an ad if they're integrated into the design from the very beginning. And then slowly over time, you can reveal those things that you're doing, that rainwater harvesting off the roof, the solar orientation, the photovoltaic panels generating energy, giving that energy to a ground source heat pump or any kind of electrified system. Those things can be revealed over time. But we all have to get better, to Drew's point, of facilitating the process. It is our moral responsibility for us all to do this. We don't need to wait for, our for the right client to say, I want a lead building, a living building, challenge building, a passive house building. We need as design professionals to design it and deliver it no matter what. So my last question on that topic is, I, I'm walking on a construction site today and it, it, you know, some parts of me when I'm thinking about it are look at all of the waste around us, right? So I go back and how do we as an industry, as professionals, how do we consistently continue to improve? Because you can't, you can't do it all at once or all at one project. It's piece by piece. So, so give us all homework, right? We buy the philosophy. We want to be greener. We know that we're impacting the earth. What's, what's the next action step that we could all take that are listening to the podcast to start incrementally improving our project? We're not, we're not green experts, so maybe the, maybe the next step is call you. Here, here's a quote. Uh, Here, here's a quote. Think more, do less. Very, very simple. That's the first thing we can do. Take some time and think and question why we keep doing the same stupid things again and again. And you know, that's, that's being a little rough, but to improve, we also need to make sure that every lesson we learn, BJ, when you're out there on a job site and you learn something and I'm working with you on a project, I'm going to be asking you every week, what did you learn this week? Share that knowledge with me. Right, We need to share that knowledge with each other. The things that I've messed up in 21 years, I've messed up a lot. And if I can help other people not make those mistakes by sharing, that's a really good thing. So to all improve, celebrate your failures and share them. Yeah, and I would say if, if you know, along, along the lines of this is, if if you can make anything do more than one thing on a project, it increases in value tremendously, right? So if we take something and say, we're going to put a solar panel on your roof and it's going to make some energy. Well, okay, that's great. But if you can actually make energy and display it in a real-time way that you can then educate around it, it's doing more things. We were actually talking to a client recently about this and it said, there was like a light bulb moment for them, which is wait, 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 you're telling me that I'm going to have all this data that my building is collecting that I can then work with my students and have them use the data from the building to do active learning. Okay, now what we're doing is way bigger than just the move on the building where, you know, we're increasing the value of these sustainability things. So it's really about doing multiple things at once. And there are, there, there are very subtle things that we can do that have sustainability impact. We can, we can change the window spacer in our, in our insulated glass assemblies. You know, we can change the amount of uh, fly ash or slag we're putting in our concrete, right? No one's going to see that, right? But it has a huge impact. But then there's other things that we can do that are really meaningful. And, you know, I think that that's the goal is to look at ways to create, as Scott was saying earlier, authentic sustainability. I think that is sustainability that has meaning. It gives us connection, you know, to the natural world, um, to the living systems around us. I mean, that's how we're kind of evolved as 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 creatures to to kind of have that relationship to the natural world. And the more we can do that, the more meaningful the work becomes. 
one of my favorite awesome. projects right now is that that Muhlenberg project because you can see all the sustainability features in the project and the teachers in the building are bringing the students through to use as curriculum to teach. They're teaching them what it means to, to make a building bird safe. They're teaching them about how to take the rainwater from the roof and instead of dumping it right into the lake and causing a problem, how to retain it and use, use it to flush all the toilets. They're teaching from that building. And that's got what I would refer to as stacked benefits. Yeah, Not just I, the I've energy never, efficiency, the water efficiency. I, I've never thought about that and like the, the educational component because you you do it once, but you teach it a hundred times. Now all of a sudden they may do it in the future and and so on and so on and so on. It's back and to along your, uh, that open, thought, open source design concept. Yeah. Along that thought, BJ, one of the things that gives me hope every day when I wake up is the younger generations that have experienced some of these things, have learned from it, and are going to change the way that our culture operates across the board. I am so hopeful every day when I talk to younger, younger people about what they're trying to do and what they value as important. That's great. Our job, Drew's job, my job, just to support them. I agree with that. Inspiring People in Places is brought to you by MCFA. MCFA is a CVE verified, service disabled, veteran owned small business. At MCFA, our why is to inspire people in places through project leadership. We provide planning, strategy, program management, and construction management support services to a wide variety of public and private sector clients. Last section here, we're going to do rapid fire questions. And because it's, it's both of you, I'm going to make it easy. Three questions. Actually, I'll do the fourth. Favorite quote? Book that you recommend? Three people that you would, three people dead or alive that you would have a, a dinner party with? And what do you want on your tombstone? Four easy okay. questions. Who's going first? I'll jump in. Okay, so right. you want to start with um, quotes, and it's it's so hard for me to pick one quote, you know, because there there are a bunch that are linked together here, and so I'll I'm going to link together an excerpt from four quotes, and so the first one is Peter Buchanan in a piece called The Big Rethink. He said we need to recognize fossil fuels as a one-time evolutionary gift, the only legitimate use for which is to create the means to harvest renewable energies. I think that's really inspiring. And I'm going to tie this back to a quote from Bruce Mao, who says, now that we can any do anything, what will we do? And I think that the answer there that I'm going to tie to the next one is we're going to undo what Bill McKibben has said is that climate change is the biggest thing that humans have ever done. <laughs> so we're going to undo that, right? We're going to undo the biggest thing that we've ever done to take it all the way back to another quote from an architect who I got to learn from in, in school, W.G. Clark, who talked about in the best architecture that when we replace what we take out of the landscape with an intensification of place or culture shapes the place to specific use that heightens the beauty of the place, that's when we seem worthy of existence. So we got to wind can't, all the way you, back. You, can't, you came strong with those. That, that well, was preparation. That, that, was, that was the 10% prep. That was not improv. <laughs> that was, yes. Okay. <laughs> Scott, quote? Good luck following that one. I can't. Scott, <laughs> yeah. um, I, I think he already dropped me. his. Do less, think more. Well, I, or think more. Do that's one. That's one good one. But the other one that I really appreciate is Bruce Lee. Very simple. Be like water. And you can put that into YouTube. You'll see him with his own words saying it. We need to think about the built environment to be like water. Don't be in the way. Don't put yourself in the way. Use its energy and just think differently. So I really like that quote. That's a short one. So back to you on books. Yeah. So for books, I want to go back to in 2006, a good friend of mine, Lisa Conway. At the time, she was my Interface product rep. She's now the vice president of global sustainability for Interface. And she's just an awesome person. In 2006, 
we were both kind of in early in our sustainability journeys. And she she came into the architecture firm I was working at and she put three books in my hand that altered the course of my career. And the first one was Mid-Course Correction by Ray Anderson, which is about Ray Anderson was the founder of Interface. And it was about when he realized the environmental impact of his company, it hit him like a ton of bricks. And he's like, I have to change. Hit him like a spear in the heart. Like a spear in the heart. That was the statement, spear in the heart. So that was the first one. The second one was The Ecology of Commerce by Paul Hawken. And this was a book that kind of just really opened up my mind to the concept of externalities in in sustainability. And so it's like, we don't always think of, you know, we think about the thing in front of us and not all the, the broad influence that it has. And then the third one was Biomimicry by Janine Benyus, which just, again, you know, really taught me to, to look at nature and how nature does things, to think about how we can do things different and maybe even better. Came, came prepared again, Scott. What do you got? Yeah, I, I got a bunch, but I'm going to go in the other direction after listening to Drew's a little bit. And I would say one of my favorites would be The Republic, Plato. Not the whole book. But it's a you know philosophy. There's this beautiful part in it when when Plato is uh, discussing the idea of what truth is, and there's a scene in like there's a there's a whole reference to being in a cave, and we are in a cave looking at a wall shackled, can't look away from the wall, and there's a fire behind us, and that fire is casting a shadow over a body on the wall, and right now we think that's reality. And that is where we have functioned for the last 150 years of climate issues. It's not until we break three of those change, chains, turn around and realize that there's a fire behind us, nothing before was reality. Then we have to reach a level of enlightenment when we walk out of the cave and understand the natural environment. The challenge is going to be, though, once you get there, do you walk back in the cave? to explain to others what we need to do? Are you strong enough to do that? That's a really hard journey. So that one part of that one book, I think is a great thing for people to understand the journey that we all have to go on together to get to a better I, I, place, to get I, what good looks like. I'm loving the passion and and the uh, this, the tough love that Scott's dropping on us right now. <laughs> yeah. All right, dinner parties and tombstones. So, I did think about this. I wasn't necessarily thinking about these three people at a dinner party, which makes this extra interesting. But so the first one was Bill McKibben. He's been a real influential person. Every time I've met Bill or heard him talk, it's it's kind of like shaped shaped my trajectory so i'd love to spend some more time with him the other one would be as an architect i have to say carlos scarpa has always been an inspiration to me and then the third one which would really make this interesting and surprising has nothing to do with architecture sustainability is i've always dreamed of hearing Jimi hendrix play in the same room <laughs> but that would really mix things up with carlos scarpa and bill mckibben but look who knows you know, hey, that's, that's, how all good, that's how all good dinner parties start. Yeah, right. Okay, so for me, three people, Judy Wicks from the White Dog Cafe, because she's the grandmother of sustainability here in Philadelphia and has taught me so much. And I am so grateful for her leadership. Second, Sim Vanderine on the West Coast, because of his viewpoint of the natural and built environment and how they should coexist. Third, Joseph Campbell the author of Hero, The Hero's Journey, because he mm -hmm. understands part of what we're all looking for is the same thing. All religions are based on the same thing. We all want the same fundamental thing. It's just a question of how we get there. That's awesome. All right, tombstones. So it's, it's not really the tombstone. You, you told me tombstone or how I want to be remembered, and I'll go with the second That's one. Right. So one of my favorite authors, Aldous Huxley, he, to paraphrase badly, he said in one of his early books that the world doesn't need better doctors, lawyers, architects, et cetera. What we really need are better parents, better neighbors, better friends. And so the way that I'd like to be remembered is bringing that kind of warmth and meaning to the professional work that we do to make the world a better place. 
Oh, that's awesome. Scott? All right, I'll give, you, I'll give you a quick one. First, I'm a type A, so like you, I I'd be fine noticed. with something. I haven't noticed at all, okay. <laughs> just like, you can just put on my team tombstone, like I just got a lot of stuff done. That's it, I'm done. <laughs> but bottom line, BJ, I don't want a tombstone. Ah, put me I in knew the ground, that was going there. Wrap me in a cloth. Let me go back to nature. Plant a field of wildflowers over me. After my body decomposes, give me a nice oak tree. I'm good. I need to go back from dust to dust. Right? Let me go back to nature. Awesome. I I, I think that is a exclamation point on on the deep green. Uh, that is Revision Architecture. Drew Scott, loved having you on the show. Thanks so much for sharing your knowledge, your experience, and your passion. I, I, I believe, you know, with similar, there's, there's a similar quote, don't ask what the world needs, ask what makes you come alive, because what the, world's need, what the world needs is people who have come alive. And obvious, you guys have gone deep and, and passionate about what you do. Thanks for, for sharing it, for inspiring us, and, and joining us today. Happy to join Thanks BJ. so much, BJ. Thank you. All right, guys. Hey, everybody. If you're enjoying this show, do us a favor and subscribe to Inspiring People and Places on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast hosting platform. We'd also greatly appreciate if you left us a review and shared this with other entrepreneurial public servants and all your friends and family in the AEC space. Be sure to visit our website, www.mcfaglobal.com. Sign up for our newsletter to stay in touch with us and learn about all of the projects and clients we're helping. Last but not least, we are hiring. We are always hiring. Do us a favor. Take a look at what jobs we have open. Contact us through our website or connect with me on LinkedIn. Until next time, have a great rest of your week and a great weekend.